How are you today? That was in October of 1984. That's correct. Well, it, naturally, it, it wasn't not. We didn't expect that. We did. Uh, We we knew that they that they that they were upset with it. So, I mean, they had, they had shot up. Uh, they had uh, severely wounded an informant that we had working for us. He was uh, eventually became a paraplegic. Uh, but but it was a it was a surprise, and and it, it uh, raised tensions to another level. It changed the way that we. Looked at things and then very quickly they moved him and his family out. So uh, we we lost the, we lost his services. He was a very important part of the the, the office. He was very uh, had a lot of you know he was very experienced and capable investigator. So it uh, it, it 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 affected a lot of things. It changed it changed. Uh, Things change things drastically. Yes. Uh, actually, almost nothing really. Uh, we I guess we knew it. We knew about it, but that was about it. We, we really didn't uh, have anything to do with it. They, no, absolutely not. Uh, the State Department has, in larger offices, they have uh, have their own investigators and uh, in a place like the consulate they would just take one of the consular officers and assign him or her that duty to coordinate the the investigation with the local authorities and that's what they did in that particular case. No, absolutely not. Uh, when the other two people uh, disappeared, uh, John Walker and uh, and the Rattlet Boy, what, th that happened almost at the same time that 
that that happened just before Kiki was kidnapped, and and uh, and Eve Walker, the the uh, wife of John Walker, she came to Guadalajara, and she met with me several times, uh, wanting us to help them, and and uh, I kept telling her, you know, we're not having any success locating our agent, and uh, you know, we can't. We can't help you any more than we're helping ourselves, and it was uh, it was hard. It was a hard thing to do to to not be able to to help her, but uh, we weren't helping ourselves really at that period of time. I would say that by that period in time, it was pretty much it, it, it pretty, every day was pretty much normal. We were we were always tense, but it was just just the way things were every day. It, that has been coming now for oh I don't know a year or so. That was the, the the tension had really become just a part of way of life. Really, we uh, we were as I say as I have said previously, we aren't very many and. Uh, we had lost three of the agents, four of the agents, and, and uh, only recently we got uh, Alan Vachelier moved in, and then uh, Shaggy Wallace had come during the summer, and uh, other two agents who had been assigned after Roger Knapp's car got shot up, uh, they uh, realized they weren't uh, that anxious to come on down, so they had uh, renewed, they had re they had taken away their their request to get transferred. They weren't coming. Right, uh, Kiki had about a, uh, less than a month to go before he transferred, and he'd been selling items, uh, personal items, and selling a few of them, didn't have any, uh, because he didn't, to keep from bringing them back to the States, and, uh, he was taking, he, he did, he walked two, two blocks to the main, to a main street and then two blocks up to another bank and he was swapping the pesos for dollars. So he he did. He walked four blocks by himself up and back uh, without uh, molesting, without any being molested. That was probably around uh, 
I don't know, perhaps 11 o'clock in the morning, morning of the 7th. Alan, uh, we wouldn't have normally done this, but uh, Alan was new in the office and didn't didn't uh, didn't think about it. But he had arranged for a meeting with a confidential informant at the Camelot restaurant, and the informant showed up with his wife and a small child. And uh, Alan went to meet with him, and I went across also to introduce myself to. Uh, to be there because Alan intended to pay the informant and um, uh, the rules that were required that in most cases unless it couldn't be avoided that uh, that all payments to an informant be witnessed by another agent and so uh, that was the reason that I went over there so there would have been the two of us plus uh, the confidential informant, his wife and son and Alan and uh, while we were there, I contacted the office. It had to be. We didn't have we didn't have cell phones in those days, so it had to be with a radio. And and, and asked uh, the office to have uh, Agent Camarena come over with one hundred dollars, and which he did. He came over and was there for just a few minutes. Went back to the consulate. About noon, more or less. That's correct. And the Camelot restaurant had a open air deck porch in front of it, right there, right there at the corner. And, and there were tables and chairs on that. And that's where we met the informant. And that's where we would go after work sometimes and have a few beers. Well, that is correct, but the reason for that was that our parking privileges for everybody in the consulate had been uh, lost about uh, two weeks previous to that time. They had they had decided to uh, read it. I don't recall now whether they were getting ready to 
remodeled the thing or they or just raising the fees but we had lost our parking privileges there so we were we had talked to the to the owner of the Camelot and he allowed us to park our vehicles in their small parking space That's correct. It, it, uh, they, they had a talking, small parking place there, good enough for about three cars. Uh, and, and it was, it was set back from the car a little ways. Agent Catalina arrived before I did and parked his pickup truck in one of the parking slots. When I arrived, oh, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes after him, there was no place for me to park in the park, in the small parking lot. So I parked directly behind Agent Camarena, blocking his exit. That is correct. Well, several times that morning, Agent Camarena was visited by someone, a, a Mexican immigration officer named Rojas, that uh, I... That Kiki was talking to, I don't think we ever actually made the guy a confidential informant. He was just somebody that Kiki knew that uh, would talk to every now and then. The guy worked at the airport. And uh, the guy visited Kiki that morning. And Kiki explained that he was coming there to try to get any, a non-immigrant visa, a visitor's visa for a friend of his, a guy named Jose Luis Gallardo Para. And uh, maybe, I think maybe we had talked about it the day before because we had pretty much decided not to try to recommend the guy. I mean, the guy could, could request a visa on his own, but they always felt that uh, a little nudge from, from one of us might help might help the uh, might help him get the visa, and I think we had decided not to uh, let the guy not to 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 support that request. And I saw Gallardo Prada without knowing what his name was of uh, there with uh, with Rojas that morning, and. Uh, I think that uh, what happened was that, that uh, I'm really not certain whether Kiki uh, 
broke off the thing for the next day or not. But uh, outside of that, we just uh, pretty much did what, did what we do all day long. Uh, read, uh, read, report, talk to informants, plan our, plan our days. And uh, we had a we had a temporary agent in in the office. Fidel Sanchez, I think his name was. Uh, and he and I were planning to go visit uh, a site where Rafael Cano was having a home built. We planned to do that in the afternoon. At uh, more or less around 2.15 or 2.30 or something like that, I uh, left the consulate with Fidel to go and look at this site that an informant had told, given us the address. And I asked for Kiki, and one of the secretaries said that he just left to go meet his wife for lunch. She didn't say where he was going. I'm not sure he told her. And so uh, Fidel and I walked across to the consulate. I mean, to the uh, to the to the restaurant, and uh, got in my car. It was still I still had Agent Camarena's vehicle blocked, so the two of us got in the car and left. At that time, Agent Camarena's truck could have left, but it uh, stayed. No one did. Well, not since we didn't know where Kiki had gone to meet his wife, and we knew he was leaving in a less than a month, uh, when Fidel and I uh, Returned to the consulate, the, the pickup truck was still there. Went up to the office, Kiki was not in his office, but we didn't really, we didn't think that was unusual because uh, he was leaving and we knew he, or we knew he, had, we were told that he had gone to see his wife, so we thought that he was uh, enjoying himself with his friends and uh, more or less celebrating his. Uh, Pending transfer. In fact, Agent uh, Wallace, uh, Shaggy Wallace, and Fidel and I all got in Agent Wallace's car and drove to uh, another hotel to meet with an informant who had arrived the day before, who was there to help us working on uh, against Miguel Felix. Uh, we talked to him, plan, made plans to, to to do to start an investigation and meet again with him the next day. 
returned to the consulate uh, after it was already closed, and two of the secretaries were sitting, actually sitting on the deck outside the of the Camelot when we got there. Uh, we said hello to them, and we got in our vehicles and left. Kiki's pickup truck was still there. We didn't. We didn't think anything of it. We uh, we we believed this is just what I just said that that he was out with his with his uh, wife and friends in celebrating the transfer, the pending transfer. I received a call from Agent Wallace early in the morning, and he had just he had been called by Mrs. Camarena to tell him that Agent Camarena had not returned home; that it was very unusual, very out of out of uh, out of character. Agent Wallace called me; I agreed with him. Agent Wallace left his house to go and leave his wife with Mrs. Camarena, and I headed for the office to try to see what I could could find there. Uh, at that moment, really, because he <laughs> he didn't have a girlfriend, there, there, and, and he wasn't the kind of person that that got got drunk or anything like that. I mean, if he was missing, something was wrong. There, that 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 was just out of character entirely. Yeah, I would have to agree with everything you said. The the uh, as soon as I got there and realized that that he wasn't there, that uh, there was nothing to <clears throat> nothing readily available to indicate where he might be. I started call. I called the office. I called the the different members of the of the office and asked them all to come in and help. Uh, by that time, Agent Camarena, Agent Wallace had dropped his wife off and had and, and uh, had arrived at the consulate, and the secretaries began to make phone calls. The other agents began to make phone calls. Uh, we knew that we got, we were going to have to depend on the Mexican Federal Judiciary Police to do any physical searches, and so. Uh, one of the agents went to the office of the MFJP to ask for help. That would have been Alan much later. And then I uh, called uh, my supervisor in 
Mexico City, Walter White, to advise him that that Kiki was missing. Um, we I did that within thirty minutes of the time I arrived there. Well, it, was, it would be wrong to say that Rafael Cotto was the primary suspect. I would say that, if anything, it was the primary suspect, but it would have been the Yellow Pelix at that point in time. Uh, but, but the whole city was full of drug traffickers, and those were the ones we had identified. There's no telling. At that time, there was no telling or no... No, no... no no other identified suspects, but that didn't mean that, that there couldn't have been, you know, there could have been some other one of the drug traffickers in, the, in that city that we hadn't identified. I mean, sure, it was easy enough to sit down and, and make a list of all of the drug traffickers that we knew of, but it, we could have, it could have been someone else as well, and you know, I mean, we were waiting, hoping to get a ransom note, although that was, uh, you know, kind of far-fetched because, but you hope, you hope, you you know, you never give up hope. No, there, there wouldn't have been anything that we didn't know that Agent Comrade was working on. We, just, I mean, after all, we were with him the day before and the day before and the day before, and we were all very close, so whatever he was working on, we already knew. So there, there, you know, there was nothing like that. I mean, we looked at, we looked at his, at his desk, sure, for pieces of paper, and then there was nothing there, and he had, there, there wouldn't have been anything about the day before that we didn't already know anyway, because we were with him.
Oh no. <laughs> it does. <laughs> no, and in fact, I don't think at that point in time we felt it like it, that it was. Well, you know, we, we you can say that the DFS and the Mexican government were the same thing, and that's not really true because the DFS was, was a secret police that wasn't very secret, and they had been completely, if not if not bought, bought by the traffickers. I mean, they they they, they you know they, they they I'm assuming that they did the investigations for the for the Mexican government that didn't have anything to do with the drug traffic, but we didn't see it that way. But we didn't, you know, we didn't think that the DFS on its own would uh, pick up Kiki. On the other hand, we didn't know. We didn't know who'd had him. Yes, of course it was, and uh, Jackie Wallace's wife Yolanda helped helped tremendously. She went over there and helped uh, calm her down, and, and uh, they obviously exchanged uh, thoughts. They had been they had known each other for years and years, and uh, they were both. They had they had spent, spent many years as as the as the spouses of uh, of policemen, so they they were not. I shouldn't say it wasn't unexpected, but they knew there were they 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 were well aware there were dangers, and uh, she did have three small children. The smallest one, Eric, didn't even talk yet, but. Uh, Mika showed a lot of courage. She was a great inspiration to the agents that that showed up and and in the search, we uh, assigned an agent to, to to stay inside the house. The MFJP agent, the MFJP assigned a, a group of agents that be around the house to protect her because no one, uh, to protect the family because no one knew exactly what was going to happen. 
for a while we didn't even know, for a while we weren't certain that that's who had taken him, even. But no, no, Mrs. Carina showed showed uh, a lot of uh, class, a lot of courage. The ambassador Gavin met with 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 uh, Mrs. Carina, Agent Peter Nundes, and myself, and uh, to get our feeling about what he should uh, say to the press. And Mika asked him to please make sure that her son, that her father, that her husband was not treated like a number, and make sure that uh, that his disappearance and if he was found dead made it, made it, made a difference. Alfredo Savala Avila was a pilot for the uh, Mexican Agricultural uh, Agency, the Department of Agriculture, if you would. He was a former military pilot. He retired from the Army. The Mexican Army didn't have a separate Air Force. And then he got a job at flying for the Agricultural Commission. His job mostly was that of a taxi driver. He, uh, Guadalajara was the regional headquarters for the Agricultural Department, and he ferried officials around, and then he did, I guess he did errands for them. And uh, long before I got there, some other DEA agent had... Uh, had recruited him to help with information about mostly about what was going on at the airport, things like that. He was not involved in the drug traffic or at all, at all, anything like that. And uh, we had actually uh, used him, rode with him on uh, several occasions to uh, just uh, reconnoiter uh, different areas of, of uh, Mexico where we had heard that uh, the traffickers were 
planting of marijuana and uh, opium properties. Uh, and, and, and he also gave us information about the major traffickers that lead, that used uh, that used that hangered their aircraft at the Guanahara airport the day that that uh, Kiki Kiki was kidnapped on the 7th we learned about it on the 8th sometime during the the around midnight of the 8th in order to get any Assistance from the state judicial police, I had to go and file a missing persons report. And uh, the consul general graciously accompanied me to the state uh, judicial police headquarters in his vehicle. And while I was there, I received a call, a radio call. To call the Vinadia, to, to call on the telephone back to the office, which I did and spoke to, to Agent, uh, Bachelier, who told me that Captain, Capitan Savala's family had called and he talked to one of the sons who told him that Capitan Savala had also been kidnapped on the 7th. And he gave me, uh, a, a rundown of the, of the circumstances of that kidnapping. That is correct. Well, the first thing that happened, positive thing that happened, is that the Comandante Floraventura, who was sort of their trouble, troubleshooter, was sent up from Mexico City, and he arrested a number of state judicial police officers for their complicity with the drug traffickers, and... Uh, interrogated them. As a matter of fact, during the interrogation, one of the commandantes of the state judicial police passed away. According to them, according to the, to the Mexican government, he had a heart attack. His family dis, 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 uh, rejected that and said he had been tortured to death. But, but, during the interrogations of those people, they did not, they all claimed, they all confessed that they had been involved in the, in the, uh, in the kidnappings in one form or another, but they gave no 
addresses. Then uh, a little later on, uh, Rafael Carlos was located in Costa Rica, brought back to the United States with with uh, three henchmen, and they were interrogated. They did not uh, give an address, even though they confessed to some to being to being uh, involved in the kidnapping. They did not give an address, and it wasn't until after Ernesto Fonseca was arrested in Puerto uh, Vallarta that the Mexican government gave us the address. That's the first time we knew anything about the address at 81 Lope de Vega. And that was probably, I don't know, a couple of days after Fonseca's arrest in Puerto Vallarta. I don't have the date in front of me, but yeah. Well, I, whenever, whenever I gave the news to DEA headquarters and, uh, that Kiki was missing, I gave it to Mexico. I didn't, I gave it to, to, to Mexico City. They then turned, talked to DEA headquarters. And then I got a couple of false calls from DEA headquarters, but they started sending people immediately. And so did, so did Mexico City. So that, all during the all during the, the evening, late evening evening of the eighth, and all during the night of the ninth, and early morning of the ninth, people began to arrive. The Mexican commandante in charge of the search arrived late on the ninth, and slept in until almost noon. And then we all met together in the MFJP offices there in Guadalajara. So that I guess, I guess, if I recall correctly, it was probably in the early afternoon that we were actually standing outside talking and uh, we get a phone call, a radio call, I'm sorry, radio call from the DA office saying that they had intercepted a radio message on our little uh, Radio Shack scanner saying the gist of which was that Miguel Felix 
was headed for the airport and for somebody to take him some money because he was leaving town. So I passed that information along to to the commandant in charge of the search there, Andreas, and uh, he decided that they would go to the airport and talk, try to intercept Miguel Felix for him before he could leave. And I pointed out, uh, I, I believe, three different DEA agents told him to accompany the Mexicans, and uh, the Mexicans left. They I don't recall how many went. It wasn't very many because they were usually, for the most part, using rent cars that the DA just had, had uh, rented for them. So there couldn't have been very many since those were not really big cars. And they headed for the airport. When they arrived at the airport, instead of, instead of encountering Miguel Felix leaving, they encountered a Falcon jet and it uh, was leaving a hangar near Miguel Felix's hangar. They, for some reason, confronted the group of people that were accompanying that that aircraft. I, guess, I suppose because they were all armed. And Pablo uh, Andreas talked to them, and he talked to the person who was. The obviously in charge of the Falcon jet. He that that person presented some uh, some credentials, and some of the people in the in the uh, armed group were known uh, to to Andreas and others because they were ex MFAP agents. That's not the way it occurred. As we were, as we were, I was at the DEA had, had the, I was at the DEA office when the when the confrontation took place. Edward Heath was at the MFJP office. He had a handy talkie, a DEA handy talkie. One of the agents, Ralph Vidruel, comes on the radio and says. A, he more or less said we had to, we had a confrontation here, but there's one guy got in in a Falcon jet or he got in it. Yes, he no, he did he did. He said a Falcon jet, and they are leaving. And uh, he either gave the in number, the number on the aircraft, or I asked him and he gave it. And I said that is a Falcon. That is a new Falcon jet that is used by Rafael Cano. At which time, Ed Heath jumped on the radio, or, or used the radio, talked on the radio, and he said, stop that jet. But uh, Ralph answered back and said, no, it's too late, it's already leaving. We did not have 
we absolutely did not have a photograph of Rafael Cano Quintero. We didn't have one. DEA headquarters did not have one, and Mexico City DEA did not have one. So we did not know who like, who who it was until we until Juan Reyes returned from the consulate from the airport, and we all met. And then uh, it was determined that that's uh, one of one of the MFJP agents who had accompanied Juan Reyes said that it was Rafael Cano. Pavon Reyes said he didn't know that, that he didn't know him, and that was not the credentials that he that he was shown. That particular MFJP agent stated that that, uh, that uh, Rafael Cano had given Pavon Reyes, or had told him that he was going to give him, going to bribe him. But no DEA agent heard that conversation. Oh yes, we 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 knew we knew who owned it. We knew most of the aircraft that the traffickers. The Guadalajara traffickers used at that period of time, so we knew it, it, it belonged to the Cordero Stolfert family that uh, Rafael Cano used it. The Cordero Stolfert family owned a, the Ford agency, Country Ford, where Rafael Cano had purchased a lot of vehicles. They were, they were, they 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 appeared to be money launderers for Rafael Cano. No, it was not. There's a, there, Operation Linda was created originally with three three different uh, investigators, and it, it was uh, they were all stationed in headquarters. The lead agent was a guy named is a guy was a guy named Bill Coots. He's still alive. Bill Coots came down to Guadalajara accompanying two FBI forensic specialists 
to look at the house at any one local de Vega. And he happened to be in the DA office at Guadalajara that day. It was like it was just a couple of days after Ponteca had been arrested in Puerto Vallarta, and I received a call from Walter White, the deputy of Conchatachés, the assistant Conchatachés, and he told me that the CIA had a source within the Mexican government, he may have said Mexican military, who told them that Kiki had been interrogated and the, and the interrogation recorded and that he had heard the, a portion of the recording and uh, Walter told me a couple of little things in there. He said that uh, that he had been asked that in the re- that in the the recording he had been asked if he knew a person named Jesus Ramirez, and uh, I told Walter that that was the name of of a of a assumed name of a confidential informant in our office and that uh, it was the only name that Kiki knew for the confidential informant because the confidential informant did not work for Kiki. Kiki had met him and that based on that that I felt like that uh, that the information about the recording must be correct. Then Walter asked if I would come on down to Mexico City and we would talk to the CIA and get the whole story from them, what they knew. And so I did that night. Bill Kuntz and I flew to Mexico City. The next morning I went to the to the embassy. Walter White and I went up to the CIA office and talked to someone there. I do not remember his name. And he told us that. He, he repeated the information that Walter had told me, and he, uh, plus a little more. Uh, he said that's all he knew. Uh, coincidentally, the direct the administrator of DEA had arrived in uh, Mexico City the day before, accompanied by a man from the State Department. So I went with Walter downstairs and told the administrator of DEA and. Stephen Trott, the State Department person, and Edward Heath, the DEA SAC, of what I had learned at the CIA and that and my belief that it was true based on what I'd been told. They had a meeting that day, scheduled that day with the Mexican Attorney General and and they said they would take, they would bring up the matter during the meeting, which they did. The attorney general told them he knew nothing about it, but he would investigate, and if true, he would call them. And that it, there again, that is what happened. They returned to the to the embassy, and in a short period of time, they received a phone call from the Mexican attorney general, who said that in fact it was true, and that if they would return. He would let them listen. And so they did that. The uh, 
they went back, listened to the to the to the to the uh, recordings, and in fact, they recorded it, uh, a portion of it. And re when they returned, they played the recording. I told them that yes, it was Tiki's voice, and uh, they left it at that. I don't, I'm sorry, a few days later, Edward Heath received a phone call from the Attorney General's office. And when he went over there, they allowed him to listen to several recordings. I think he said he actually listened to several tapes. Um, and we tried to get copies. They did not give us copies. They kept. They they said it was embarrassing to the government, to their government, to to admit admit that the recordings had been done. So we were not able to get copies, but we kept on trying and kept on trying, and eventually, Walter White was summoned to the Attorney General's office. He went over. Someone, and I and I do not know who gave it, who it was, gave five cassette tapes to Walter. The cassette tapes were marked Copia 1, Copia 2, Copia 3, Copia 4, Copia 5. Walter put them in a DEA evidence envelope and sealed it. My secretary happened to be in Guadalajara in, in Mexico City that time some, on some administrative matter, and he gave them to her. She flew back to Guadalajara, gave the tapes to me, and the next day I flew to Washington, D.C., and gave the tapes to Maddie Moore, who was one of the agents assigned to Operation Leenda, and he made copies. Well, we always commonly refer to the recordings as the, the tapes, but actually, it who knows it was if it if it was how many tapes there were. It was a recording, and obviously, the entire the re, entire session of interrogation that was recorded has been doctored. Uh, that pieces are missing. The the CIA turned over a transcript of a portion of the recording which does not appear on, on any of the so-called tapes that we read that we received. We received five tapes. Two of them are portions of recording, portions of re, re, recorded inter interrogation. There's pieces missing. It's very obvious that there's pieces missing. And, a part, and the CIA, so-called CIA transcript is not on those tapes. Uh, one of the one of the tapes is is a copy of 
one of the others, what we call copia four. Uh, it is a copy of copia four, but it is so faint that you can hardly hear it. And it took a long time for and lots of lots of uh, lots of work to to be able to hear it to the point that that, that in fact it is just a copy of the other one other tape. One tape, a copy of four. It is a copy of four. Two is not copied. I believe I believe that's correct. Uh, then there is one of the tapes is uh, radio is radio. Uh, communications from our office. You can hear my voice on there. You can hear Alan Bachelier's voice on there. It's very short and you can hear a baby fussing. So obviously the re the recorder was left on and uh, to, 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 to hear whatever we were saying. And it's short. It didn't, it's uh, maybe half an hour at the most. And the last tape is the is a the interrogation of a man that we know is that we knew as Juan Brito. And he was actually a an MFJP help agent. I mean a DFS agent. Uh, stationed in Zacatecas during the period of time that we were working that case up there. And then he got transferred to uh, to Durango and he and the opposite side of that tape is his, is his girlfriend and she was interrogated. What is interesting about Juan Rito is that sometime before the interrogation before the interrogation took place he had apparently been stationed in uh, Piedras Negras, Mexico, and made friends and became a source of information, if not an informant of an of an F, of a border patrol agent there, who then became an FBI agent, and that FBI agent had reached out to him, and he had traveled to Juarez, Mexico, and across the river to El Paso, Texas. I do not know uh, with what kind of documents, and met with the his old friend, his old Border Patrol friend, and several other FBI agents. A DEA agent from from Mexico City was invited to go up and was allowed to listen to two days. And he was interrogated, questioned by the U.S. agents and returned to his office, to, to where he was stationed in Durango. What's really interesting is that during the period of time that he was talking to them, the Mexican, the Mexican officials or somebody in Mexico, some of the bad guys, or maybe even the DFS agents, had him under surveillance. They knew he was meeting with the American agents. They watched him during that entire period of time, identified the American agents. And uh, when they interrogated him, they asked him about all of that. So the it, it, it appears that when Kiki was interrogated, he told him about the name of a, 
He assumed the name of a man who helped us in the containers. His assumed name was Juan. And Juan Brito, I think that the Mexicans thought he was the informant and started following him. He had not been the informant, but actually was an informant for someone else. And that their, their surveillance of him actually led to his uh, interrogation and, and I'm sure death because he'd never been seen since. No. The the uh, the recordings were probably done. By, by playing a, by by recording them from the from from whatever the source was rather than 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 uh, than through a wire connection because the quality of the sound is not very good it's really hard to pick up identifying things but there is no there's no accent there's no there are no major accents there, and there's certainly no Caribbean accent or Cuban accent. They all sound like Mexicans. Um, They, whether or not the people that are interrogating speak English or not, there there's little doubt with that they were Mexicans. Well, I have listened to them many times, and uh, almost any time you listen to them, you, you pick up something you didn't hear before, if you listen close enough. And, and a lot of, some of the early transcripts were wrong and had to be uh, corrected. They're, they're, the, the, the quality of the recordings is really bad, especially uh, Copia 4. And the, it, 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 
two just from the from the, the the way in which Kiki answers the thing, it sounds like it's if it's not the first one, it's very near the first because he sounds doesn't sound as weak uh, at that period in time. Whereas later on, it it the, it you can see that he's that he's very tired. I, I even I even feel like that Kiki might have known the first interrogator because he's almost uh, in, the first interrogator was if not polite uh, at, at least not demanding and and uh, and when and when Kiki calls him Comandante it's it's not as if uh, it's almost as if he knows him. I mean that's kind of hard. That's just that's just a personal thing, but. Yes, yes. I testified 
as a government witness about what I knew uh, in the first trials, well, in, in both trials, I mean, and then, uh, but when I testimony was not about Ruben Zuno, it was about what I knew about the whole Camarena, uh, uh, about Kiki's time in, in, in Ecuador when I was there. And I testified about, I testified about my interview with uh, Ruben Zuno concerning his ownership of the house that Eddie won up in the Vega. And I testified about uh, a little incident that we had had in, um, 1982, uh, where, where an, an allegation was made about Ruben Zuno, but uh, I was not a, a government employee or a government agent. I was not a part of Operation Leyenda. I never was. And I knew nothing more about the government's case than what I, than what I have just said. The government did not include me in their case. They didn't tell me what information they had. Uh, I was not a part of, of, of their investigation. Uh, no, I certainly did not. I probably felt that I was, uh, not helping him. Everybody, 90% of all of the people that probably were involved worked for Ernesto Boteca. Very few of them, a few of them, were more closely associated with Rafael Cano, but Rafael Caro is Ernesto Fonseca's nephew. 
and they were very close. Rafael Cotto does, at a certain period of time, purchase the house in any one of the Vega. As an investigator, I would have to say that I really don't know. But if I'm going to speculate, I would say those those two. Which one was the, was the more likely? I don't know which one was Miguel Felix not involved. That's hard to. That's really tough. Because, for one thing, he abandoned his office in Guadalajara on the seventh as if he knew it was coming. So, I really don't know. I mean, speculation, it, it, it always has to be those three dudes, but now whether or not they were all that stupid, I, I really don't know. I, I honestly don't know. Thank you very much, and thanks for uh, promoting my little book that I think it's a memoir. It's not a book; it's a memoir. So, thank you very much, and and uh, I I, uh, I I I agree with what you said. That's the best way to find something out. Thank you. Thank you very much. When are you, when are you going to Miami? <laughs>